How much does this thing cost? The economics of the future are somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money? You mean you don't get paid? The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. In the 10th season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great works of literature that have something to impart to us about the nature, importance, and dangers of science and technology. You know, Arthur C. Clarke warns us that information is not knowledge. Aldous Huxley tells us that technological progress has merely provided us with more efficient means for going backwards. Picasso quips that computers are useless because, well, they can only give you answers. And Nikola Tesla predicts that we may live to see the man-made horrors beyond our comprehension. So, what do you think? Is the oblivion of being endemic? Well, let's find out. This is the wisdom of... And this is episode 3, Star Trek. than the usual starts where I just seem like I don't know what I'm talking about. This time, it'll be the absolute real deal. I don't know what I'm talking about. One of the completely imagined binaries out there is the the either or of the battle of the stars. Either you're on team Star Wars or team Star Trek. I, I don't even know if that's true anymore. Imagine or not, youthful me chose a side. I nestled myself into a nice rut, and old man me is way too tired to dig himself out of it. And that side was obviously Star Wars. I watched Star Trek The Motion Picture when I was very young, probably too young, fresh off being dazzled by Star Wars and its rollicking space adventure. Six-year-old me wanted absolutely no part of a more deliberate, meditative film. Or I think my review to my dad was... This is the most boringest film ever. I don't think I said film. I probably said movie, but whatever. And since then, a switch went off in my brain. I'm not a Star Trek guy. So consequently, for this episode, I did most of my research for this episode on YouTube, a place that I lambasted just last week. So as you now all know that people close to me know, I'm never not a hypocrite. So tell us about Star Trek, and I think specifically to narrow down this massive topic, you're going to focus on the next generation. Yeah, exactly. So that's right. So we're going to look at Star Trek, the next generation here. Because, well, you know, we won't lie. We think it's the best and most insightful of the bunch. Okay, well, that said, here's a brief summary. So the next generation is a a TV series created by Gene Roddenberry which first aired in 1987. The show follows the adventures of the the ship, the USS Enterprise, 
as it explores the, the Milky Way galaxy with Captain Jean-Luc Picard at the helm. It's set in the 24th century when Earth is part of the United Federation of Planets. The Next Generation explores numerous interesting themes, many of them actually philosophical in nature, such as the concept of time, artificial intelligence and the nature of personhood, and the dangers of ideology. The Next Generation went seven seasons and ended in 1994. Despite what I said in the beginning of this episode, I actually was the one who pushed for this topic. Our first few episodes of this season on science technology have, I think it's fair to say, been, I don't know if I want to say critical, but taking, I don't know, a slanted view towards science and technology. And what little I did know about Star Trek, I knew that it had a very positive view of science and technology, and I thought we could use a little bit of that. So... In the show, I I think they use their technology to eliminate need and through that eliminate money, kind of like a a supercharged version of universal basic income that gets so utopian that you don't even need money anymore. As a little sidebar, it kind of lays waste to the old chestnut that money is the root of all evil because, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was some evil in Star Trek but I guess it would ruin the, the pithiness if you change the maxim to money is the root of many, but not all evil, with the caveat that if we eliminate money, don't worry, fans of evil, it'll manifest itself in some other manner. But that aside, if we take a more positive view, what was the overall effect in Star Trek when we had this, this staggering change of no money? Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a different world up there in uh, Federation space, that's for sure. And you're right to say that Star Trek takes a a pretty optimistic and hopeful view of science and technology. Okay, but to say something about your point about money, let me, as usual, back up a bit and set the stage a little. Okay, so let me start in a very unusual place. Let me start with the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus. So one of the things that Epicurus rejected was the the hyper-expedient lifestyle that characterized the the public life of Athens at that time. He thought that the the hot-blooded life in the city, where everything was, you know, hustle-bustle, and where everyone was trying to pursue wealth and success and distinction, was, well, just not productive of happiness and self-actualization. And that's because he believed that only when you have the time to sit down and to really reflect on things, free from the compulsion of work and incessant opportunism, are you going to find wisdom and fulfillment? Actually, that's why he bought a small plot of land in Athens and opened up his own school called the Garden, which was a a non-exclusive, peaceful, and non-competitive place where people could come to talk to each other, do some philosophical reflection, and develop real relationships with one another. I don't know, it was a bit like a like a modern-day commune, but of course with more of a philosophical bent. Now, what was also important about Epicurus' philosophical message to people was that life in the garden would never be one marked by poverty and need. And that's, of course, because everyone there would have recourse to the fruits and vegetables of the earth. In other words, part of Epicurus' teaching was that nature provides for all that you really need. 
And so, with your needs so easily met, you could now look forward to a a full day of leisure ahead. And so you could turn to the reflection and the discussion and the friendships that that free time afforded you. Okay, but you're probably wondering what the heck any of this has to do with Star Trek. Well, here it is. In the world of Star Trek, the next generation, money and material consumption is not the measure of the good life. No, actually money or currency doesn't exist in the Federation. And what's more, technology has reduced the need for work. And so it's a world free from laborious work and suffering. You know, where you're trying to constantly provide for all your material needs, reduced to the beast of burden. Whereas God told Adam, only through the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread. No, instead here, in the Federation, people are free to pursue their own interests, their own freely chosen projects, and they have their own unhurried time to just contemplate and reflect on things where they can let thoughts gather and deepen within them. Technology aside, this is sort of like the garden in space, right? Anyway, so I guess my point here is this that one of the things that Star Trek tries to make us aware of, and I think this is very important, is, well, the shortcomings of the values we hold today. Specifically, values centered around work and the pursuit of wealth. Actually, now that I think about it, you know who's pretty relevant here? Aristotle. So, Aristotle talked about something he called skole. Now, for him, skole meant leisure. But more specifically, it meant something like being in a condition free from necessity or constraining work. Actually, I should add that our word school is derived from skole. And isn't that interesting? That real education might have something to do with the results or the fruits of leisure, not compulsion. Anyway, for Aristotle in particular, this leisure was of paramount importance for for self-actualization and for Well, just for flourishing as a human being. And that's because it enabled us to tap into and to exploit what is absolutely highest in us. That is, thinking. What Aristotle called theoria. So already we see that leisure for him has nothing to do with inertia, with being idle or turned off like it has become for many of us today. No, to paraphrase the Roman Cato, Never are we more active than when we do nothing. Or maybe another way of saying this is that we can actually be amazingly productive without constantly producing. Actually, it's interesting. The word theoria is composed of two words, namely to see and God. So to think theoretically is to, well, see God. It's to contemplate the highest reality of things. Now that's when we're at our best, says Aristotle, when we come closest to the mind of God. Actually, importantly for Aristotle, our real nature as human beings, our our original default state, is being in this condition of leisure. It's to freely contemplate, to wonder at, and to reflect on things. Our real nature is not one characterized by the compulsion of work and utilitarian thinking. In other words, to be fully human is to have that opportunity to live in that space beyond the necessities of life that is free of compulsion and work. 
You know, this gets me thinking about the nature of thinking in general. I mean, Aristotle has a point, no? That the sort of thinking that manifests itself free from compulsion is very different from the sort that's tethered to coercion and everyday practical concerns, the sort that's assimilated to labor. I mean, there's often something linear and calculative and limited about the latter sort of thinking. But genuine thinking, on the other hand, like Aristotle intimates when he speaks of our innate capacity to wonder, is playful and it's free. I mean, we're all born in play, right? And so maybe we should try to sustain and nurture the thinking born from play. Not the sort of everyday thinking that the Korean philosopher Byung-Chul Han characterizes as something hard and direct, like a, like a march or a scream or an order, but rather the sort characterized by detours, melodies, and dances. Certainly this is what Nietzsche counsels. Actually, he saw the loss of contemplation in his time as a sign of the onslaught of a kind of barbarism. And Karl Marx, too who believed that adults should be taught by their children. And hey, also Mark Twain, who tells us that he never did a day's work in his life, that everything he did, he did because it was play. So maybe this is part of what Star Trek is suggesting to us, that this sort of playful and melodic thinking would be possible for more of us, more of the time, if we lived in a Federation-type place. But Even if the Federation's a bit of a utopia, maybe it's still possible now. I mean, maybe it's possible to actively resist the complete totalization of productivity and work in order to make some space for that sacred place where true leisure resides, so we can develop the eyes to see the gods. I think we talked about this before on the podcast, but we could make a whole uninteresting list of terms juxtaposing how they're used in philosophical or academic context and how regular humans like me do. Like if we think about the word cynic or Epicurean, like I'm a bit of a cynic, but I am by no means a cynic and you you are as about as far as you can get from being an Epicurean while simultaneously being quite an Epicurean. We could also think about it this way, like the dueling definition idea in terms of materialism. Strangely, I think you're going to focus on the more run-of-the-mill materialism, the one relating to stuff, things, owning, and wanting to own those things. Yeah, you, you got it. Let's talk about stuff and owning stuff. Okay, so we've seen how money is obsolete in the Federation. And as I tried to show, I think this is important because it opens up leisure and so the possibility for a kind of creative thinking. But along with the absence of money, of course, comes the absence of material goods. And that's clearly what we see when we watch the show. I mean, the minimalism is pretty glaring, isn't it? First of all, there are no noises and no distractions, just the soft hum of the engine. And then very few objects decorate the ship, and the rooms of the crew members are completely sparse. Basically, nobody owns anything except maybe one or two items that are special to them. Like, in Picard's case, 
uh, a Shakespeare book, or a small flute. So, regarding all this, I think what Picard says in one of the episodes is really important. He says, We've overcome hunger and greed, and so we're no longer interested in the accumulation of things. In other words, when everyone gets their basic needs met, and when everyone can get everything they want, made instantly from the replicators, then possessing objects in abundance no longer holds any appeal. So what's going to be emphasized instead? Well, intellect, creativity, and competence. Now, I know that we admire those things now, but I'm afraid we've still got a long way to go before we get to this 24th century ideal. I mean, it's hard to deny that ours is an age of rampant, conspicuous consumption, right? Actually, have we really transcended our Neolithic brain? Or are we really any different from Homer's world, you know, 3,000 years ago, where your worth was expressed in your expansive land and your large bovine count? But anyway, so what is conspicuous consumption exactly? Well, it refers to goods that we buy not of the sort valued for themselves and, well, inconspicuous, but goods that are made transparent to others and that are taken as markers of a person's success, like a, I don't know, like a large house or a, or a car collection. In other words, it's when we buy and accumulate large and expensive objects, not to connect us with others or to even preserve and tend to those objects for their own sake but in order to signal to others our status and wealth and power. Actually, this sort of rampant ownership of things crosses over into our relationships with people, too, which is made evident by the proprietary language we use to describe these relationships. You know, for example, we say, we say things like, that's my lawyer, and those are my workers. Anyway, to, to get back to the point about status and perception. It's interesting, there are several studies out there that show that we're willing to take less money overall so long as we're making more than everyone else around us. So, for example, we'd rather take a job where we earn 90000 a year and our co-workers earn 70000 than one where we earn 100000 but our co-workers earn 150000 In other words, we measure our worth in terms of our relative position to others. Anyway, back to the point about minimalism. So, is dispossessing ourselves of material objects a good thing? Well, my own personal opinion would be, well, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, I would say that materialism and the accumulation of things is no good when the things around you are totally disconnected from the the constellation of your being or from the, the rootedness of your existence. And when you simply surround yourself with things that are discardable, replaceable, and constitute nothing but a a quantitative surplus. Things which are often the products of, well, conspicuous consumption. And, uh, by the way, which don't ultimately meet the promise of a a happier life, due to, of course, that well-known phenomenon of hedonic adaptation. You know, when the glow that comes with our purchase starts to fade, leaving us that much more dissatisfied and in need of something new again, something new to get stimulated with. Okay, but on the other hand, I would say that so-called materialism isn't always a bad thing. I mean, it's good to have objects and things around you if those things express, manifest, or celebrate a part of who you are, where you're going, and where you've come from. 
and maybe most importantly, promote solidarity. That is, connect you to others in a positive and genuine way. In other words, maybe another way of saying all this is that it's good when you have a personalized, not depersonalized, relationship to your objects. You know, I remember talking to someone about what we would run into to try to save if the place we lived in was on fire. Now, he told me that as long as he could grab his computer, he'd be okay. Well, I just couldn't say the same. For me, almost everything in there is, in one way or another, a part of me. It's my creation. It's my past, and it's my connection to others. In other words, what's around me is a is a manifestation of myself and my world of concern. And, you know, I think concern is the key word there. Material things don't just have quality in and of themselves. Rather, they take on a genuine quality or value when they're cared for, when they enter into our orbit of concern and love. I think maybe the the mistake that people make is that they acquire a bunch of stuff that might be economically valuable, but they basically neglect it. And I'm not sure it has any real value in that case. I mean, what good is a brand new fancy guitar if it's just sitting there, used as a, as a sign of wealth? Now, compare that to an old, beat-up, financially cheap guitar, but one that you've used a million times, one that you've created songs with, and one that you've carried around with you through thick and thin. Now, how much more valuable is that? Again, real value is begotten through love, not through simple acquisition. Okay, but here's the thing. Like Aristotle, who tells us that it's impossible to have more than a couple of genuine friends for the reason that real friendships require sustained attention, sacrifice, and effort, well, so too it goes for those special material objects in our life. That's to say, it turns out that you just can't have an excessive amount of them if you want the things around you to light up and to have any value for you. No, you have to devote yourself and to care. And to really care, like the care for your child or your friend, means that you limit what you bring into your life, thereby making what you do have sacrosanct, whether it be an old letter, a tree trunk, or, well, a resican flute. Simply put, the less you have, the more you can love. to the wisdom of podcast if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod our next episode brave new world brave new world brave new world